Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Do those words sound familiar to you? Yes, because you've heard them read or said at almost every funeral that you have attended. Yes, the words belong to Psalm 23, which has in effect become known as the funeral sermon, psalm at least. But in reality, this psalm, if you compare it with various versions of the Bible, in reality, this psalm is one of the most mistranslated and misused psalms in the entire Old Testament. You see, the psalm was written by Jews. But for them, this was not a psalm about death, but a psalm about life. The life of a committed believer in the hands of God who has promised to lead his sheep through the whole range of human experience, through the good times, through times of confusion, distraction, and exhaustion, through times of fear and terror, times of deepest darkness, and then times of rescue, relief, and rest, times of plenty. So then let's take a good look at this psalm and read it together as it stands in the New King James Version. Let's read it. I don't know whether you can you all see the, the verse numbers up there? You can see them. So I will just name the verses and you'll follow me as we go. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Look at verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. Don't follow me. Just follow me now. The Lord is my shepherd. Now, is this really how this should be translated? Anyone, anyone who can read Hebrew will have to admit that the Hebrew text clearly reads, Yahweh is my shepherd. And that makes a huge difference. Any of you who've been studying scripture know what that name Yahweh is. Yahweh is the most sublime name of God, the most exalted name, 
the most majestic name, the most magnificent, the most glorious name of God. So holy was this name in the eyes of the Jews that they were terrified to say it. They wrote it, but said Adonai instead. In other words, Lord. So they would not want to say, Yahweh is my shepherd. And so they said Adonai, but unfortunately, we've got the translations out there which say the Lord when it is Yahweh. Now what's that mean to you and to me? This is what we want to talk about today because I'm a person who studies what we call encounter theologians. You can study your Bible for all you like. You can come up with all your theories. You can study Greek. You can study Hebrew. You can become a theologian. But unless you encounter him about who it is written, what you know is worth nothing because it's about him. Encounter is what we're looking for. I'm not interested in just reading this stuff. I sat under professors at Princeton, many of whom I don't think even knew him, who even knew the Lord. They were experts in everything, but they didn't know him. And you could tell. There was no faith. There was no change. There was nothing about them that seemed to reflect who this Yahweh is. Who is this majestic Yahweh in relation to his people, in relation to you and to me? What is he like? What does that name Yahweh mean to you and to me? The answer comes through another name that the Jews knew him by. It is the name by which God described himself to Moses. When Moses was there at the burning bush and God was wanting to send him to the Israelites, go back to Egypt and to lead them out, when Moses asked God what name he should give when the Israelites requested or inquired as to who had sent Moses to lead their nation out of Egypt, God said to Moses, tell them. I am who I am has sent you. I am who I am. And that name, if you study its meaning in the Hebrew, in essence it contains the assurance that I am who I am is the God who is there for you. God is there for his people as he was with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am is the God who is with you. So then, this is who Yahweh is. The majestic, magnificent one who is there now for you. And that, my friends, makes all the difference to the meaning of the psalm. Because the psalm says, Yahweh, Yahweh is my shepherd. He's there for me. 
I am who I am is my shepherd, the great and the majestic one who is there for me. And so when I read, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. Yahweh who is there for me is in control of my life. That's what it is saying. He is in control of it. He is in control of my situation. And I don't have to be a prophet to know that a lot of you are hurting in here today. Just look at the situation in this country and in the world, in finances, in all kinds of areas. Many people in here are hurting. But the fact that he is your shepherd and is in control of your life means a number of things. It means that he's in control of that particular situation in which you are either hurting or you are afraid or troubled. He's in control of my situation. He's allowing me to be tested. Yes, tested. But never beyond my limits to bear. Yes, I know that the great apostle Paul did say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, we were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Some of you there? Are you under great pressure far beyond your ability to endure so that you despair even of life? Yes, that is how Paul and his companions felt about it. But it was not the big picture because in the next verse, verse 9, Paul said, but this happened. This experience of being despairing of life. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. Therefore, he could say, and I can say, Yahweh is my shepherd. I shall not want. He who is there for me will take care of my needs. Then in verse 2, you can find it quite easily. There is verse 2. thing I won't switch off okay verse 2 he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters so what we're reading here is yes in life's stresses when I emerge from one of my life's traumas when I emerged battered and exhausted, I know what trauma feels like. I know what it feels like being in the southwestern Pacific on an island called Eramango and having two strokes, one after the other. I was in touch with Dr. Mi Tang here in Glad Tidings and with Greg Wheaton on the phone. 
And they told me that I'd had left hemisphere strokes. And Pastor Greg said, you better go to the main island to the hospital. And I said, you're better dead than going into that hospital. And then he said, you need to come back to America. I was exhausted. I was battered. I was afraid because there's nothing more frightening than a stroke when you can't get yourself to stand up off the ground, when you tell your body to do something and it doesn't do it. I lived in fear because of that. And I was exhausted. But God did something. He changed things. One day, one night when I was living night after night in fear that I'd have another one. It went on for many weeks, probably about two months, this fear. When suddenly one night, when it was time to go to bed and I was afraid, I heard his voice in my head. And he said, forget about it. And I knew he was saying, it's over. The boss says, forget about it. And so he took me out of this state of exhaustion and fear and changed things and led me into a new experience. Green pastures, grassy meadows, lush green meadows where I could rest without fear. Lush green grass where there are no dry, barren places, just comfort, security, and rest. There is nothing like knowing that God can do anything. The doctors do not call the shots. They will not decide when you die. You will die when he says it's time to come home. And I knew I was safe. But life does not end in a state of feeling secure. Because you see, the, you've got to move on in the process of recovery. There was always a certain anxiety after those strokes that I must not overdo things again. Because I knew I'd brought them upon myself by overworking, by getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning and working hard all day till 7.30 at night, even later driving myself, being a driven person. God does not like that. He does not want you to be driven people because it means that you are driven because of motivations that do not come from him. So life does not end with this comfort and security and rest. You see, we have to move on with the process of recovery and recovery means action. Yahweh wants to lead me back always into an active life when I've been traumatized by something, when I need to recover from it. He leads me not beside flooding, roaring rapids. Rapids can be hurtful to sheep. He leads me and I follow him beside tranquil, quiet streams where I neither hunger nor thirst, and where I can actually recover. See those stories of the strokes. 
were not the end of the story on that island of Eremongo. Because we went on. And I came back with Selwyn and Laurie, and they helped us carve a mission station out of the jungle and then came back to be with you after nine months with us. And then we were alone again with the island. This lonely island of Eremongo where we were often under great stress and pressure. We had enemies. There was an evil chief on the west side of the island who hated me. He tried to have me expelled from the island. He worked against me. He loathed me more than anything on this green earth. And he had a gang of thugs who were roaming the village at night when we were on the west side of the island. <clears throat> they were moving about in the darkness, smashing stores, breaking windows, stealing the goods that came from the stores. And these were men who belonged to the chief because there was a great land battle, a struggle over land. And these men were his thugs who were against the people who really owned the land and who were godly Presbyterian people. And one day the chief wanted to know with whom I stood and I said, I'm sorry, but I cannot stand with you because I had told him that he was a liar and a cheat and an inveterate thief. And I said, I cannot support you. I am with the others. And so that marked me as a man. And so we lived every Thursday and Friday night when these thugs got drunk and came wandering in to the village, coming down south to where we lived in a bamboo hut, never knowing what they would do. And as we heard them approach, Sue and I would get dressed at 1 a.m. in the morning, put our clothes on because we didn't want to be caught in our pajamas, not knowing how we're going to handle these people. So we were alone. We were afraid. We had enemies. At times we were living in fear. And finally, when we'd moved to the east side of the island, which was much easier and much better in terms of comfort and climate and fertility of soil, we had problems because these Eremongans on that side of the island turned against us. The Pentecostal pastor hated me from the beginning. The chief who claimed to be Pentecostal was a thief and a cheat. His sons and he were utterly immoral. The Presbyterians were so hooked on the drug carver that they were drunk on carver, stoned on this drug pretty well every night of the week. So stoned was the one elder who could pray up a storm on Sunday. So stoned was he one Thursday when I came to find him that he came out of his hut staggering and didn't recognize me even though I was the only white man on the island. Now we walked carefully with them and tried to lead them out of this, but in the end, in the last year, God said to me, now tell them straight. You've been patient, and we did. And so we came to the point where finally 
the village, most of them turned against us and rejected us as they had done to the missionaries before us whom they had killed and in two instances eaten. But when we were exhausted and at our wit's end, God rescued us from that island. One of the men he used to do that, or the one he used to do that at that point was Rickstraw, who had a burden for us. And when we had come to the end of our money and it was all gone and we were selling tents to buy fuel at $10 a gallon to run our generator to charge our satellite phone with which we communicated with America, when we reached the point when we were selling stuff to do that and we had no money to get out, we were stuck on Eromongo, Rick Shower gave us the money to fly away to where? New Zealand. Green pastures. Can you imagine New Zealand after Eromongo? We go to the South Island to a little town called Lawrence. <laughs> a lovely little town where we moved into a motel where the, where the owner was a Methodist preacher. And she invited us to her church. And then we discovered there was a South African doctor there and his wife who were Presbyterians. And then I ended up preaching in the Presbyterian church. And at the Presbyterian church were some very wealthy sheep farmers. And they invited us over to their sheep farm and they said, well, you want to see this island? Here's our car. They handed us a RAV4. They had plenty of cars. And they sent us off in their car down to the Alps. You know where those Alps are? It's the place where the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, was filmed. How about that for green pastures? That's what my God did for me. No crooked chiefs here. No drunks staggering around at night threatening to kill us. No fear, no anxiety. Green pastures beside still waters. Then in verse 3, look at verse 3. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Strange words, though. Think about it. You and I, the way we use the word soul. He restores my soul. How is my soul restored? You ever thought about that? What is the meaning of the word soul here? The Hebrew word is nefesh. And it has a very wide range of meaning as you work through the Bible. Because you can read one state that he actually is involved with you, body, soul, and spirit. That's a different picture. But it has a very wide range meaning. And according to Henry L. Carrington, Jr., 
Soul generally refers to the whole person. You can say 50 souls were saved from the shipwreck, meaning the whole person. But the whole person has to include not only the body, but also the emotions. You're not just a body, you have feelings. And that's what you're dealing with every day of your life. So then, the soul must include the mind. And this is what C. Brown calls the sensitive part of life of the ego. Your soul, your mind, is the sensitive part of your ego, who you are. It's the seat of the emotions, of the longings, and of gladness. So in this sense, then, according to Gerhard von Rad, a great Hebrew scholar, nefesh can mean the seat of all the activities of the human mind. He restores my mind. Are you battered? Have you experienced some of the things that I have when I've been so tired it feels like I'm losing my mind? Have you felt such stress, such anxiety that you feel like you're losing it? He's promised. He'll restore your mind. He'll rebuild it. But you have to believe him for it. He will do it. So when Yahweh leads me beside still waters, he restores not only my physical body, but also my damaged, bruised, and incapacitated mind. Some people have been so seriously damaged by experiences in their childhood, negative experiences that have happened recently, horrendous situations that have torn them apart. I've been hearing some of the things that have happened to children lately. It's a horrendous to, to hear what goes on but there can be healing of the mind. And that's what Yahweh did after New Zealand. Yes, in New Zealand, we had not come home. We were in a country that wasn't ours, blessed by green pastures, spoiled, rotten, loving every minute of it. But we were a long, long way from home. And then God took us home. My family know what kind of a miracle that was because we didn't have the papers to re-enter America. But he did the most miraculous thing to the extent that an immigration officer looked at my papers and he said, you've been out of the country for how many years was it? Two years, ten months, when you shouldn't be out for more than five months if you're a permanent resident. He says you've been out of the country for two and a half years and you got these papers. How did you get issued them? I said, I don't know. They just arrived in the mail. And he sat there shaking his head, just grinning. He said, well, well, here they are. And we got in again. God brought us home. He took us back to America. And here God began to restore our souls because I have to tell you something. You all know about post-traumatic stress syndrome. When we came back here, well, my wife can speak for herself. She might not like all the things I say, but I'll tell you about how I felt. I felt scared of everything. 
I couldn't understand why I was so frightened. I was frightened of traffic, which I wasn't afraid of before. I was scared all the time. And then I discovered from Selwyn that he'd had the same symptoms when he came back from Eremongo and the trials that he'd had there. And I began to realize that, that God here back in America was busy restoring my soul. Let's continue again with verse 3. Look at it again. He restores my soul and he leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, if you look at yourself and some of the experiences of your life where God has been restoring your soul, now having refreshed and strengthened me, I can say, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's getting a bit difficult now, isn't it? I don't feel very righteous all the time. Seldom do. You see, up till now in the psalm, Yahweh has done everything for me. Yahweh has had my life under control. You can see that, can't you? We didn't die near a mungo. There was, we were, the, I think, the 12th and the 13th missionaries, Sue and I, on the island of Eremongo. 50% of them died on that island, either from being murdered or eaten or from sickness. God, for reasons of his own, spared us and took us out. He's had our life under control, and he has not let me be tested beyond my ability. He has made me rest in green pastures and has led me beside still waters. He's done all of that for me. You can see that. But now he expects something from me. He expects me to live up to a moral commitment so that I will not bring shame to his name. So Yahweh leads me on paths that he himself has chosen and on which he demands that I live according to his covenant standards. Folks, we have to really be careful here, you know. It is so easy to come to church on Sunday and look like goody two-shoes. I can do that. But you see, the real test, you know what the real test is? Back home. There is the real test. There she sits. Because the Bible has laid down that I am to lay down my life for her. And that in doing that, she has to submit to me as the head of the home. There are homes where women are leading. Be careful. You're playing with fire. Because Paul clearly states that a woman is supposed to submit to the husband as the church submits to Christ. And don't come up with all the excuses. You work with it. If you are a woman in charge in your household, be careful. Francis Frangipan has written a book and it's about in which he refers to the Jezebel spirit. What is the Jezebel spirit? It's a spirit that can can control a man just as easily as it can control a, man, a woman. 
That spirit is the spirit that cannot cohabit or live with anybody else unless that person is in charge. Have I got to be in control of you? Have I got to be manipulating? Are you seeing pastors out there who want to manipulate and control churches, control everything? Or do you find them Christ-like? The Antichrist is the ultimate in the Jezebel spirit. He wants to control and rule the world. Be careful how you live at home. We have to be at home what God wants us to be in public. People should be able to come into my home and see what is evidently there when I'm in here. And I tell you, that takes some doing. It takes some doing. I have learned, and I've had to learn, because I'm a sinful man, always have been. But I've noticed something, that as God has convicted me, I have learned to hear him. And so every day, I do not get out of bed before I say the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then I ask him to forgive me of the sins that I'm aware of that I committed yesterday. And ask him to help me overcome them today. Quite often it's not easy to overcome them in one day, but I discover that as I move forward, struggling to hear him and to obey him, that gradually I'm learning and then I suddenly discover that I've gone weeks without doing that sin again and I've realized he's got me over it. But be careful, it has a way of knocking the lid of the coffin open and creeping out. Dealing with me is my hardest problem. If I can bring me under subjection to Christ, then wife will be a whole lot happier. You see, what it all boils down to is this one thing. This is the divine order. It is me and Jesus Christ. If I am not in submission to him, I'm no good to her. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That means we're one. I don't even like to travel and move away from her. Because she's bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We've always worked together. She's not out working for anybody else. It's very hard for people in the workday world to be able to break away from this, but people in ministry can. She and I have worked together. There is a unity there. And what we've got to remember is that there's this divine order. It's me and Christ. My wife is my bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. We're one in him, one in Jesus Christ. And now, what does God say? It starts at home. Here is my family. Here we are. This is your household. And together with my family, we'll go out there and we'll work laterally, laterally serve the church, and reach out to the struggling, suffering world.
You cannot look into the face of God for very long before he takes your eyes and turns them sideways and says, look at your neighbor, get out there and do what this church here has been doing so very, very effectively. So, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He expects me to live up to these moral commitments. What Yahweh wants of me as one of his newborn sheep is that I live as a testimony as to who he is. I'm called to live a life that reflects Yahweh's name. I'm called Christian, Christian. Who am I supposed to be reflecting? I'm supposed to live a life that reflects Yahweh's character or reputation. But what is Yahweh's character? You know, you really see what he's really like in the story of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, you have the account of his call. But as you look at this thing, it's a terrifying experience, really, because you, it seems a little unclear as to what's happening, but somehow, somewhere, he suddenly finds himself in the throne room of God. God Almighty, Yahweh, there he is. And there is this amazing scene. God's train fills the temple, and there are these winged creatures that are flying, and they're crying out, Holy, holy, holy is not the Lord of hosts, is Yahweh of hosts. That's what it says in the Hebrew. You can look it up in the Bible. And Isaiah gets a fright of his life because, you see, somehow he's been caught dirty. How would you feel? How would I feel if suddenly, somehow, inexplicably, I suddenly find myself in the presence of Almighty God, Yahweh, the Holy One, the One with that magnificent name, and this holiness, I become aware of it. Where am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? Well, this is what Isaiah said. Woe is me, for I'm ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Scared out of his mind. He thinks he's going to die because he's seen this holy Yahweh. Then one of the flying heavenly beings, these seraphim, flies from the throne of Yahweh carrying a burning coal from the altar. And he's carrying it in his hands. And with that burning coal, the flying creature touched Isaiah's mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sins are forgiven. And now, what happens to Isaiah, who was so scared? 
Now Isaiah knew that by the grace of Yahweh, he was clear and free. Then, suddenly, Isaiah heard the voice of Yahweh saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And Isaiah, knowing he was clear and free, cries out, Here am I, send me. And that's the only basis I can ever go into ministry. The burning call, the grace of God, and the fact that God does use imperfect people who need constantly to be cleansed and changed. Now verse 5. Actually verse 4, I believe it is. Yeah, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now here lies the problem that I spoke about. Here lies the reason why Psalm 23 has been reduced to a funeral psalm. It's those words, the valley of death. Yes, those words are certainly one of the translation options taken by some versions of the Bible, such as the King James Version, the New King James Version, the New International Version, and some others. And I have to warn you folks, I can do it any time you would like to test me. I'll show you differences in those versions which reflect human bias. Not every translation has it. You've got to get into them all to find out what's going on. But in the face of these translations, let us remember this. Let us not forget that even though we have these, the New King James Version, the King James Version, the New International Version, and some others saying, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I must not forget that Psalm 23 is a Jewish psalm written by Jews. And I have in my hands here a Tanakh, T-A-N-A-K-H. It's the Jewish Bible written in English, the Tanakh. And here in the Tanakh, the words valley of death are absent. Instead, we find the words, though I walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In full agreement with this Tanakh translation are two very prominent and reliable Christian Bibles. The New Revised Standard Version has these words, Though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. Now the New, New Revised Standard Version, I think, is probably the best version we have available. Because it has the greatest Greek scholar and Hebrew scholar, I believe, who ever lived. His name's Bruce Metzger. He's passed away now. I 
sat under his teaching one day in a university in South Africa just for one course on Revelation, one subject. And then he taught in my church. I got to know him. He was at Princeton. The name Metzger is one of the biggest names in Bible translation. Open any Greek text, the Nestle text, the um, UBS text, and look at the front and you'll see editors, Bruce Metzger and others. Metzger's Bible, the Bible that he's worked with, is this one, the New Revised Standard Version, and it has, though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness. The Catholic Jerusalem Bible has the words, though I pass through a gloomy valley. And what finally clinches it for me is this. This is the interlinear Hebrew-English Old Testament. It has the Hebrew words written in Hebrew, and underneath them, it has the English words. And here, quite clearly, we see that the words are translated Valley of Deepest Darkness. You'll see the literal translation there. Where did they get it from? They didn't get it from the Hebrew, Valley of Death. So then, the bottom line is that I am talking about, not about, the Valley of Death. I'm focusing on life. This psalm has a message for you. It has a blessing for you. Leopold writes, wraps it up very clearly. He says, the Hebrew word used here contains no reference to death as such, but does refer to all dark and bitter experiences, one of which may be death. So for me in the Christian life, how am I to understand the valley of deepest darkness? It means that on my road through life, as it is for you, I will not be spared having to face distresses and dangers in this valley of deepest darkness. But why is this valley so dark? Why is it called this dark valley? You're, some of you are in a dark valley right now. Why is it called a dark valley? It is because Yahweh sometimes wants me to trust him in his hiddenness. Think about that. Sometimes he wants me to trust him in his hiddenness. In Psalm 10 verse 1, the psalmist had a problem, you see, about this hiddenness because he asks God, why? Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You know that feeling? I'm going through some tough stuff at the moment. and I've been wanting him to speak to me for a long time, and he's been silent. But I felt his presence. I know he's not left me. But he's not said anything, and it drives me crazy. In Psalm 31, the psalmist asks, How long will you hide yourself forever? And in Psalm 88, 14, the psalmist asks, why do you hide your face from me? You know that feeling. I'm sure you do. Many of you are in here know that. Why do you hide your face from me? Yes, my friends, it may well be very dark out there, but that does not mean that God is not present. 
Because in this very verse in the Tanakh, in this verse 4, I believe it was, Yahweh says, Though I walk, I mean, not Yahweh, yes, Yahweh says to me something very important in the psalm. The psalm reads, Though I walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm, for you are with me. That's the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible. Though I walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm, for you are with me. Yes, in that valley of deepest darkness, Yahweh may be hidden from our view. Is he hidden from your view? He's hidden from mine right now. Because of things I'm worrying about. Yes, he may be silent. He's very silent with me right now. But nevertheless, Yahweh assures me and us, I am with you. So again it says, read it, I'll read it to you in the Tanakh. Though I walk through a valley of deepest darkness, I fear no harm, for you are with me. So though Yahweh is hidden from our view, he is present like a shepherd, and we will experience his comfort, which comes through his shepherd's rod and his staff. What is the rod? We won't spend much time on it. But the rod is a kind of a cudgel which hung from the belt of a Palestinian shepherd. At its broad end, it was pierced and, punct and punctured with nails. The nails were all packed into it to make it heavy and hard. A very potent weapon for clubbing something or someone as a defensive weapon. The staff, it was a typical shepherd's crook. You see them in all these nativity plays. It's got this hook on the end. It's used for the purpose of guidance and leading sheep, but it's also used as a defensive weapon. So Yahweh will defend us. He won't just leave us. But how does that happen? If you want to fight your battles, you'll fight them alone. One of the first experiences I had at the hands of a very fine Pentecostal pastor, he taught me, those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. When you're attacked in a church or anywhere else, just put your hands up and report them to God. And don't fight. He'll take care of it. He'll take care of it. Then in verse 5, in verse 5, the thought turns to sustenance, to food, and for want of a better word, to medical care. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even a good man has enemies of one kind or another. People who dislike us. People whom we t with whom we tend to clash. People who work against us in the workplace. I'm sure you've got them. Just the very fact that you are a Christian will bring you under fire these days. They don't like us. Charles Spurgeon said, if we were without enemies, we might fear that we are not friends with God. For the friendship of the world is enmity to God. 
But the message here is that right in the presence of your enemies, Yahweh will feed you and sustain you. Not only that, but Yahweh will take care of your health. Like a Palestinian shepherd, Yahweh will anoint your head with the healing oil that the shepherd carried in his flask. That's not talking, this is, this here is a spiritual meaning. Yahweh is not going to put actual oil on your head. Does Yahweh take care of your health? I stand here as living proof that he does. Are you getting everything that comes your way every winter? Are you getting flu, being incapacitated? You can't work because the flu's got you again. That type of thing. When I was at Zion Bible College, I came to the conclusion that I couldn't handle all the students that I taught. I taught six courses, six subjects, six classes, and a full-time person is only supposed to teach three. I was overloaded, and I could not afford to get sick. And every winter, along came the flu, and the whole college seemed to be getting it. When we were on Eremongo, entire villages would go down with flu. So one day, it dawned on me. I don't need to have to suffer from everything that will incapacitate me at any time just because it's showing up in the winter. So I began to ask God and say, Lord, would you keep me from flu? I'm not telling you a word of a lie. The last time I had flu was when Michael was born 13 years ago. Sue and I have not had it, both of us, because we believe this. That doesn't mean that I'm never going to be sick or anything else. I have high blood pressure and take medicine for that. But high blood pressure is without symptoms and doesn't incapacitate me. Thirteen years, we went through epidemics of flu on Eremongo. Everybody was sick. We didn't get it. We've had them go down at Zion. We didn't get it. And that's not because I'm more holy than you, I can assure you. It's because I've learned something that you can trust God for healing because he can do anything. And then we read, my cup runs over. This means that Yahweh will adequately supply every last want of the hungry sheep. What I need, he will provide. And then finally in verse 6, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. You thought about that? Goodness and mercy will follow me. What does it require? It means you play straight with God. I'm a sinful man. You're sinful. If you haven't realized that, you better go and talk to him some. Because one day you might meet him and find that like Isaiah did, you're in trouble. Play straight with him. Doesn't mean I have to be perfect. It means I have to come to him day by day asking for his transforming power to change me so that I don't repeat the sins of yesterday. And that day by day I grow in my relationship with him and that I can look back and say I'm not the same person I was three months ago because I am being changed.
and I am being saved. Goodness and mercy under these circumstances will follow me all the days of my life. Here is the greatest blessing of all. Fellowship with Yahweh will mean that goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Goodness, says Spurgeon, will supply all our needs. And mercy, says Spurgeon, blots out our sins. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. By faith and the daily experience of Yahweh's presence, I will finally enter into the eternal future to live with him forever. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, Yahweh of hosts, we thank you that you are indeed our shepherd, that you're there for us. And I know there's so many people in here who are hurting. It's, it's the times that we live in, Lord, the things that are happening, people who are bruised and hurting and, and who want to be healed of this and changed just enter into the fullness of what you have for them. And so I ask, Lord God, that you would enable them to encounter you afresh today and every day, that they may come to know you in your goodness and in your mercy and be changed and feel secure and not be afraid because you are with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning, we just want to give you an opportunity to, to respond to what God has said to each of us. Um, and so I just want to ask my dad to come back up here again and our deacons uh, and, and members of the prayer team to come on up. Um, if you're sick if you're hurting, if you've been challenged, if you just kind of just feel like, man, maybe you just need to get on your knees before God, we want you to have the opportunity to do that. Um, and if you're sick, we also want to have an opportunity to pray over you. Would you stand to your feet this morning?